Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome everyone to the On Poly Podcast. I'm Steve Pakin. And I'm John Michael McGrath. This week on the pod, Ontario begins to open up. The polls are all over the place in the countdown to June's election and the 100th anniversary of the birth of a great political trailblazer. It's Tuesday, January 25th, 2022, so let's get to it. JMM, biggest development last week, a gradual easing of restrictions starting January 31st. Why did the government feel it could start to open things up in the province somewhat? Uh, the numbers, broadly speaking, uh, seem to be headed in the right direction. Uh, cases of COVID in Ontario's hospitals are still growing, but much more slowly than they were in the first half of January. Uh, plus, the wastewater surveillance that numerous Ontario cities are doing are showing declining levels of the uh, COVID virus being shed into uh, Ontario's sewage. Such a, a lovely topic. Uh, hope people <laughs> are enjoying their pleasant breakfast. pleasant thought there, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so the government is reasonably confident that even though our levels of testing are not what they'd need to be to have a good sense of COVID's prevalence right now, there's enough evidence to say that we're either uh, past the peak of this current episode uh, or very close to it. Okay, let's go through some of the numbers here. If people want to gather, how many of us can gather in one place now? Uh, as uh, of January 31st, it will be uh, 10 people indoors or 25 people outdoors. People might remember those kinds of rules from prior instances of us uh, opening up. Thank you for that reminder. It's actually not yet, right? It's January 31st, so we're still a week away from all this. Yes, it'll be a week from now. Okay. What about restaurants, bars, etc.? What will they be able to do? Uh, they will be able to open for indoor dining again at 50% of their uh, rated indoor capacity. And retail establishments, gyms, cinemas, what's the story for them? Uh, they will also be allowed to uh, reopen again at half capacity. Uh, restaurants and bars will be able to open, but uh, cinemas and other performance venues aren't allowed to serve food or drink. So no movie popcorn for a bit yet. Can I tell you how depressing that is? <laughs> <laughs> That's why I mentioned it. <laughs> you know, I think before they shut things down again, I went to the movies. Um, I went to see that new... Uh, Oh, never mind. Doesn't matter. I mean, it's, it's that movie. <laughs> it matters with to me, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, because I'm at the age now, unfortunately, where I can't remember anything of, I can't remember titles. I don't remember titles of books or of movies or anything, but it's the one where they, they all become the, uh, you know, the secret uh, spy service within the British intelligence. The Kingsmen. Kingsmen, yes. That's the one I saw. Okay. And you go to the counter and you ask if you can order a popcorn and they say, well, you, I'm afraid you can't eat it here. And I said, well, i still got 20 minutes before the movie starts. Can I take it outside and eat it? Yes, you can do that. So tell me why it makes sense that I can, in a relatively sparsely populated cinema area, not eat the popcorn. But as long as I go into the mall, which is very densely populated, it's okay to take my mask off and eat the popcorn there. Would you explain that, please? Uh, I would love to be able to explain that. I, w I would add that, you know, even at 50% capacity, some of these bars and restaurants are going to be more crowded than some movie theaters are. Uh, and people are going to be sitting at the, these tables for extended periods, eating and drinking and talking and laughing, as we know they do. Uh, and uh, yet people will be able to eat and drink there. Okay, so it's not just me who doesn't get this. 
Uh, no, I suspect it is very much not just you. <laughs> okay, good. Moving right along. Okay, as, as long as we're on the issue of, can you please explain this regulation to me? Here's the next one. Quote, allowing spectator areas of facilities, such as sporting events, concert venues, and theaters, to operate at 50% seated capacity or 500 people, whichever is less. So my question is, does that mean like Scotiabank Arena for the Leafs and the Raptors or the Canadian Tire Center for the Senators can only have a maximum of 500 spectators? That is correct. Uh, and it's also worth noting that that's actually a lower cap than what uh, sporting venues uh, had in, in some of the restrictions before Omicron. Uh, so stadium owners like Maple Leaf Sports Entertainment have already said they won't bother opening home games to spectators at that very low cap. Uh you know, I, I would have to imagine I'm not an expert in like stadium management, uh, but I suspect it's just not worth bringing in all of the staff who are needed to care and clean up after a live audience uh, with those kinds of low numbers. But again, I mean, I got to ask the follow up question. How can 500 people, how can only 500 people or let's say 600 people in an arena that seats 20,000? How is that more of a risk, 600 people in a 20,000 seat arena than a local restaurant half full? Uh, I, I don't have a good answer for you on that one, but I would say that uh, I think a lot of public health officials and uh, a lot of elected officials uh, are kind of freaked out about just how quickly Omicron has spread and giving it more potential super spreader events is something that they would like to avoid. <laughs> okay. I'm just asking questions here. I'm yeah, not trying yeah. to second guess anybody. I'm just asking questions. And and if I'm asking them, I got a feeling a lot of other people are as well. Okay. Reminder, January 31st at midnight is when all this goes into effect. And the premier did say that if all goes according to Hoyle, there will be a next potential opening further after that. What's the story there? So people might remember the way this went over the summer after the the really bad you know winter and spring uh, waves we had. Uh, there were basically three week periods where you know once the government was pretty sure that the numbers were still headed in the right direction after each successive reopening, uh, they they were aiming for about three weeks. Now of course they got a bit cute with the calendar there, and sometimes they they rushed a reopening so that they could catch like the the I believe it was the May long weekend they opened a bit early that kind of thing. We might see that again, I guess. Um, but right now they're talking about uh, three-week uh, windows where uh, they will open a little bit, wait to see if things go bad, and then if they don't, they will open up a little bit more. So the next uh, uh, milestone, if you would, uh, is going to be in February. Okay. We should also point out the opposition parties at Queen's Park have also called on the government to change the vaccine certificates once again. They want people to have three doses to count as fully vaccinated, two plus a booster, the way that people need to have two doses right now in order to go to things like indoor dining, bars, restaurants, etc. Now, Premier Doug Ford was asked about that last week, and he had a rather brief answer. Are you looking at all at updating the requirements for the vaccine certificate to three doses from two? Uh, not right at this point. So, JMM, not happening right now. Why do the opposition parties want this? And what's behind the government's resistance? 
The short version is that we are still trying to get people to get their third doses if they're eligible for them. We're doing okay. Uh, about three quarters of the people 60 and over have had their third dose, but you'd like those numbers to be higher, especially in the younger cohorts. Uh, the faster that happens, the more confident the government could be that we've put the Omicron wave behind us. So we know that the certificates increased vaccine take-up when they were introduced in September, so it stands to reason that changing the rules to three doses would similarly increase take-up there. Yeah, so why not do it? Well, one reason is that until pretty recently, we didn't have the capacity to vaccinate more people, even if we wanted to. Uh, in the last two weeks, we have uh, definitely seen the number of new vaccinations drop off. So there's probably capacity to vaccinate more people if they show up right now. But the other thing that I think is going on here is, you know, the government is, they're being pretty public about this. The government is looking to wind down public health measures, not impose new ones. Remember that in the fall, they were hoping the vaccine certificates would already be retired by now before Omicron showed up. Uh, uh, but at least for now, the government is, is still saying that vaccine certificates are sticking until at least March, April, when we're in the third stage of this, this current reopening. Uh, so we're in a bit of an odd state here where the vaccine certificates are here, they're sticking around for a bit longer, but the number of doses you need to qualify for higher risk activities isn't the same number that science says offers the maximal protection. Not the first time we've had a bit of um, cognitive dissonance in this pandemic. <laughs> Right. I, I wonder if part of the reason, and maybe we'll finish off on the vaccine talk on this one, I wonder if part of the reason is that the third vaccine, the booster vaccine, does not seem to be preventing a lot of people from actually getting COVID-19. It's clearly not a vaccine aimed at Omicron. It seems more, in fact, aimed at Delta and its predecessor. What do you think on that? No, I think we're definitely in this weird spot where everybody seems to agree that three doses is better than two in terms of preventing the worst outcomes, hospitalization, uh, severe, uh, you know, intensive care, and, and, and obviously death. Um, but you could still very well get sick from COVID, despite having had three doses. And I think for a lot of people, it's, it, it's a tougher sell, certainly than the first two doses were. Right. Okay, let's move on and talk public opinion polling. You've heard me say this a million times, so if you're sick of it by now, I apologize, but I'm going to say it again. Polls are usually very good about telling us what people thought yesterday. They don't tell us what people are going to think tomorrow. They are not predictive. However, we got a bunch of polls out last week, which leave me rather confused, even about what people thought yesterday. <laughs> let's share some of the numbers here. These are from Abacus Data which have the progressive conservatives in first place at 37%, the liberals in second at 28%, the NDP in third at 25%. Okay, fair enough. Except when you compare it to what Angus Reid had to say. And JMM, why don't you share the Angus Reid Institute numbers? Angus Reid has the NDP in first at 36%, uh, the PCs in second at 33%, and the Liberals way back in third at 19%, uh, basically where they were three and a half years ago under Kathleen Wynne. Well, and here's where I jump in and ask the obvious question. How can both these polls be right? Well, there's a few possible answers, right? As you said, a poll is a snapshot in time. It's taken at a particular moment in time, and it's entirely possible that these polls were just taken at very different moments in time. Uh, the other possibility is one of them is, or maybe even both of them are simply wrong. Uh, you know, you always hear pollsters say, uh, you know, this poll is correct within, let's say, four and a half uh, points, 19 times out of 20. Well, this could be the 20th poll. It's simply the outlier and just gets the numbers wrong. 
Right. Uh, there are two other polls that came out last week as well, right? You want to hit us up with those? Right. Uh, we also had polls from Ecos and from Main Street Research. Uh, these ones uh, agree at least a little bit more with each other. They both show the Tories in first, uh, with about 35% in the Ecos poll and 30.6% in the Main Street one, with the NDP and Liberals roughly tied in the mid-20s. Uh, so at least those two can at least agree on the order of the parties. <laughs> it's also possible, you know, we, we, we didn't read the fine print on this, but it's possible that one poll looks at decided voters and one poll looks at the entire universe in the province of Ontario. And obviously those who have decided, you know, those numbers could be completely different. Uh, so that's another thing to keep in mind. These polls do remind us, though, that one snapshot out of the blue is not necessarily that helpful in terms of describing the state of play politically. You really do have to take rolling polls over several consecutive days to get a feel for things, I would say anyway. No, I, I would totally agree. Uh, you know, we are not going to, we have tried not to obsess too much uh, over polls on this podcast. But given that, you know, four came out in such a short space of time, plus there was a fifth uh, the week before, uh, you know, the, and they say such uh, very different things, we thought we'd put a bit of a focus on, uh, on it here. Uh, you know, it's certainly, I think, the first time in, in several months that we've had so many polls come out at once. And it gives us a bit of a chance to, you know, set the stage a bit, I think, for the election that's coming. Indeed. Let's talk about the most talked about photo op in the province last week. Do you know what I'm talking about, JMM? <laughs> uh, I think it was the big guy with the biggest job and the smallest shovel. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you are correct. On the day of the blizzard last week, Premier Doug Ford got in his truck, drove around Toronto with a self-proclaimed mission to help people dig out of snow drifts, which he did. But he did it with a very small shovel, which did open him up to some ridicule on social media. Right. And it wasn't just, of course, that he, you know, he was walking around with a ridiculously comically small shovel in, in one of Toronto's biggest snowstorms in uh, my lifetime, certainly. Uh, but, you know, it became a, a media event. The premier gave interviews to CP24, uh, apparently while driving, on, uh, speaking into a cell phone. Uh, that would seem to be a violation of the Highway Traffic Act, though uh, we did hear that Toronto police have said they are not investigating this matter. <laughs> Isn't that nice of them? Well, yes. let, let's state the obvious here. It is very much consistent with Premier Ford's brand to have him be out there helping the average citizen dig their cars out of ditches. Uh, it's something very reminiscent of what he did during the uh, beginning phases of the pandemic, where, you know, he showed up with his pickup truck and he took out boxes of personal protective equipment out of the back of the truck, uh, delivering that equipment to healthcare workers and so on. But, okay, you fill in the blank. What's the <laughs> but here? The, the but is he brought his press secretary with him and... Uh, she made sure that these pictures went out to all of the media, uh, some of whom, uh, let's say, did not treat this with maybe the skepticism that we would have preferred to see. Um, it was uh, a pretty syrupy example of media manipulation, I would say. And just for those of you who think that we are unduly picking on the premier, these kinds of photo ops can very much backfire on you. I can remember during the floods in Manitoba, we're going back a few decades now, um, people in Prime Minister Jean Chrétien's office thought it would be a great photo op to send him out to Manitoba and put him on the line there, putting sandbags, uh, stacking sandbags in place uh, for the cameras, you know, to build a dike against the flooding. Trouble was, his presence was a real distraction because of all the security and the reporters that inevitably accompany any prime minister to something like that. And then, you know, he placed a few sandbags, the media got their pictures, and then 10 minutes later, he was gone. And the local people were not happy at all. It looks like you're kind of exploiting their misery for your own political purposes rather than genuinely assisting people in their efforts 
which you can probably do even better with um, useful policy decisions in your office in Ottawa. Anyway, how do you think the whole Ford photo op ultimately worked? Well, you know, those who don't like the premier will see this as a, you know, a very cynical photo op. Uh, those that love him will point to this and say, you know, ah, that's our premier getting out of his office, you know, lending a helping hand. But it's not like anybody in, you know, the, the PC party high command thinks that this alone is going to win Ford a handy re-election in June. It was worth doing for the premier because it was cheap to do. It took some time out of the premier's day, but not that much. And he did a few TV interviews. It might not have convinced a ton of liberal or NDP-leaning voters to switch their votes, but it might have reminded some conservatives why he's their guy. But more than any of that, I think people need to remember that it is still January. The vast majority of voters are not paying attention to this stuff. They are especially not paying attention to this stuff through the lens of people arguing about it on Twitter. So there's really, really small payoffs to paying attention to this stuff at all at this point. Uh, unless, of course, you are paid to pay attention to it like we are. <laughs> <laughs> Which we are. Yes, indeed. Okay, we always conclude this podcast with our favorite quotes of the week, and we'll have that immediately after we ask you to give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. We love your feedback good, bad, or indifferent. We got this in, incidentally, from Andrew Ward on Twitter, who wrote, I always enjoy watching and listening to Steve Pakin on TVO, but also to have a co-host like John Michael McGrath, who can cite titular references to historical pieces of legislation, is off the charts. How about that? Okay, JMM, remind everybody, what was that law last week you mentioned? You just plucked it out of your back pocket with no warning? It was the Immunization of School Pupils Act about vaccinating kids in schools. <laughs> I, both I and Andrew Ward are deeply impressed. That was really very well done. Well, thank you for that. Uh, our listeners can also shoot us an email at onpoliticsattvo.org. We also remind you to read our weekly On Poly newsletter, which drops every Tuesday, same as the podcast. You can subscribe to that at tvo.org slash onpoly-newsletter. And this week's newsletter has got JMM and myself going back and forth on that polling business where we've got five polls out, uh, many of which say very different things. Okay, here now, my quote of the week, and I'm not going to pick something that was said last week. I'm actually going to pick something that was said a decade ago by an admirer of a man whose birthday we celebrated last week. Every January 21st is Lincoln Alexander Day, named after the first black MP, the first black cabinet minister, and the first black lieutenant governor in Canadian history. He was Ontario's lieutenant governor from 1985 to 1991. Link represented Hamilton West in Parliament from 1968 to 1980, and there's your Hamilton reference for this week. He was, of course, a trailblazer extraordinaire. And last Friday, January 21st, was the 100th anniversary of Lincoln Alexander's birth. And 10 years ago, at his funeral, former Ontario Cabinet Minister Margaret Best remembered her friend, the former LG. Every time I saw him, he would hold on to my hand very, very tightly. And he would always say some encouraging and some uplifting words for me. So it is going to be very difficult uh, for me. It is very difficult today to know that I will not see him, uh, you know, in the legislature and he will not hold my hand another time. That's former cabinet minister Margaret Best on her good friend Lincoln Alexander, who was an inspiration to so many, including his fellow Hamiltonian, me. We had a Hamilton reference, but no Bill Davis reference today, though I suspect the former premier would not mind that we uh, subbed Lincoln Alexander in for him. <laughs> well, as a matter of fact, now that you mention it, it was former Premier Bill Davis who appointed Lincoln Alexander to be the first black head of the Workers' Compensation Board. So he's got a piece of that story as well, too. 
<laughs> Thank you, you for that. You got it in right under the wire there, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> My quote of the week comes from Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, uh, who made an announcement about none of it on Monday. We have good news to announce today that we've reached an agreement with Nunavut that will cut average childcare fees in half by the end of this year and meet the $10 a day target by March 2024, that is two years ahead of the federal schedule. That was Prime Minister Justin Trudeau on Monday, and if you're wondering why an announcement between the federal government and Nunavut is relevant to Ontario politics, it's because with that announcement, Ontario is the only province or territory not to sign an agreement with the feds for childcare funding, something I suspect you'll hear more from the opposition about in coming weeks. You don't think, John, no, no, uh, there's no way. You, you don't, I mean, I shouldn't even say this, but you don't think that maybe the government is ragging the puck on this one so that they can make a childcare announcement closer to the election? Uh, I, heaven forfend. I heaven am forfend. shocked right. and dismayed at the suggestion. <laughs> <laughs> Good. I take it back. That is this week's episode of the On Poly Podcast, produced by Katie O'Connor, edited by Matthew O'Mara, production support from Nikki Ashworth and Jonathan Hallowell, JMM, as my dad likes to say, stay positive, test negative. Stay safe, Steve. Stay safe, Steve.